Good morning. Why don't, why don't we follow that with a word of prayer? Let's just pray right now. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we are forgiven and that we can walk in the light. And surely, Lord, a better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Lord, thank you for uh, this church and for the fact that we can be together to worship you and to uh, enjoy you. It is good when we go into the house of the Lord. So God, I pray now that you would uh, bless your word, um, that you would give us uh, insight and wisdom, and that you would use it to strengthen us and encourage us and to bless us so that we might continue to follow you uh, with all our hearts. So we look to you now and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been looking at the little book of 1 Timothy <clears throat> that has a lot to do with um, calling a man of God to be your pastor. <clears throat> I don't know if you guys realize it, but you're really off balance this morning. So <laughs> there's a whole lot of you over here, and there's just a few of you over here. You guys need to work on getting the, your side filled up over here. So <laughs> Anyway, um, as we've looked at 1 Timothy, we found that uh, a pastor needs to be a, a man of prayer. He needs to be a man of integrity. Uh, he needs to be a called man. And uh, in the first chapter we looked at, um, he needs to be a man who loves. Uh, this whole book is permeated by the love of God for his people. And he wants to have a pastor. Paul is instructing Timothy on how to find a pastor. And so he's, he says, you know, this is, this is all about love, really. That's the underlying theme throughout this all. So um, I'd like to read the first seven verses of, of Timothy 3, 1 Timothy 3, and I'm, I, I told you I was going to try to do uh, the whole book in six weeks. Um, I got to this, and I said, there's just no way I can get all the way through this and not be here. I know you enjoy listening to me speak, but after two hours, it would be, you know, it'd be just a bit much. <laughs> I'm being facetious there, but... But uh, it was just, there's just too much. So I'm going to break it down, and I'll finish it, uh, the book, later when I come back. But we'll get uh, these next um, couple of weeks. We'll be going through the rest of 1 Timothy 3. So, 1 Timothy 3, 1. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop, then, must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, uh, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, and not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, <clears throat> having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, at least being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So we're coming to the place in 1 Timothy uh, where Paul begins to directly address the leadership need of the church. He begins by looking at what is the pastor of the church or bishop or overseer, uh, that word is interchangeable. Um, in some of your translations, it will say pastor. Some of them it will say overseer. But it's basically the same uh, word for the same three positions. <clears throat> he, 
His intent is to give Timothy an understanding of the kind of man that should be in leadership of the church so that he can look for such men and begin to put them in the place of leadership in that church. Now, we're in the church of Ephesus. Um, Ephesus is a town that's in um, what is now modern-day Turkey, and uh, it was a thriving center of commerce, and it's a big town, big city. At one point later, and I think Timothy was still the the pastor of this church, he ended up being the pastor, was um, that church ran 20,000. It, it, it grew in, in the very beginnings of the, of the church. It was really something. Now in this passage through verse 13, the majority of the words used to describe the leadership of the church are in the masculine gender. So he's talking about finding a man, and I'll, I'll hit on this a little bit later, but this is part of the role of the men in the church. It's noble and a good thing to desire to be a leader in the church of God. Um, when I first became a Christian, I was 23, <clears throat> and uh, it seemed like everybody that I listened to was talking about how great it was to serve God. It's the greatest thing you could do. And um, over the years, the next couple of years, I, I heard that theme repeatedly. And after I'd been a Christian about three years, I went with a group called Operation Mobilization. And we would have these once a quarter type huge meetings and they would invite speakers in. I, I heard all kinds of great speakers um, there, but it seemed like all of them <clears throat> majored on this theme of how great it is to serve God. What a wonderful thing it is to be called into ministry. And uh, out of that, I, I felt called um, not just from that, but there was a series of things that happened, but that solidified my call to be a, a pastor. I thought that was the greatest thing I could do with my life, is to serve God in, in that way, of, of initially of being a preacher and then later a pastor. Um, I don't hear that much anymore. I don't know about you, but I don't hear that in our, from our teachers and our pastors, uh, lead speakers today. And I've wondered why that is. I think maybe it might be because so many men have fallen in the ministry over the years and it's become sort of an embarrassment to the church. Maybe it's been the increasing secularization of our society that, is a, that has slowed preachers and speakers up from saying how great it is to serve God. Maybe it's the constant drum of our secular media and the scream of Hollywood that says there are more exciting things to do than serve God. Whatever it is, there's a belief in our society that serving God and being a pastor is a waste of time and is only for those who cannot do anything else. I do not think Paul would agree with that at all. And after 27 years of being a pastor, and after being in the ministry for 40 years, I could not uh, agree with that call at all. It's wonderful to serve God. And I would like to encourage you as you look for a man to be your pastor, you find somebody who's excited about serving God and being in the ministry. It's, it's a wonderful calling. It's difficult, particularly in our day and time. It's a very difficult. What other profession could you give, would give you the chance to lead people into an eternal relationship with God? I don't think there's any other profession that, where that's your primary focus. I mean, we should all be doing that. Don't misunderstand me. But as a pastor, you had that wonderful opportunity to speak to people about their relationship with Christ. What other profession would give you a chance to be involved firsthand in the saving 
of an entire culture. Our culture needs saving. <laughs> Holy mackerel, we're in, we're in a heap of hurt. And I believe it's going to take some godly wisdom and leadership to bring us back to where we need to be. What other profession would give you the opportunity to get involved with people and see how you can help them to make life-changing decisions and to see them grow and mature and become people of God with a purpose and a hope? In the ministry, you have that opportunity. And you, again, this applies to all of us because we should all be involved in ministry one way or the other. We should all be helping people see their call and their purpose, their God-given purpose. Being a pastor and being in God's army has given me a chance to do all of that and more. It's been challenging and it has been discouraging at times and has been hard at times. But, it is, but is that not true of all jobs? Um, I'm a landlord too. People used to ask me, how do you be a landlord? You know, you got to put up with weird people all the time. So my reply to that has been, do you work? You have a job? Is everybody in your office easy to get along with? <laughs> Is everybody that you sell to easy to get along with? Everybody you interact with on whatever level that is? All people are difficult one way or the other at different times. And we need to understand that being a pastor, that's just part of it. You need to find a man who understands that, I think. I think Paul was trying to remind Timothy of some of that as he outlines for him the kind of men he should be looking for for leadership in the church. These needed to be exceptional men <clears throat> who could see the great nobility of the call to serve God. So let's look at this passage in a bit more depth. Um, I believe there's three parts to this passage. Uh, the first is the call of the overseer. I believe that one of the ways God works is to put a desire into our hearts. So look at that first verse with me. If you can pop that back up there. Um, this is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. Now, there are two, uh, the translation there has two desires in it. But that's not really um, the Greek there. The Greek is two different, completely different words. So the first one means aspire to or seek or eagerly seeks he sets his heart on it in other words a person who desires to be a pastor has set their heart on it he's 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 going after it with all his inward character and inward being but then that second desire there it says if a man desires a position of a bishop he desires a good work that second desire is an outward desire that's um, that is like a strong passion. It's sort of overwhelming. It refers to an inward desire taken uh, into a, an outward um, motivation, if you would. He has outward desire that is driven by an inward motivation. I believe that that alludes to the preparation that a man ought to make or take for full-time ministry. He needs to be a man who is willing to do what needs to be done both outwardly and inwardly. In other words, he needs to be a student of the Word of God and be able to handle the Word of God properly. But he also has to have that inward motivation of love and care and concern for his flock. Those two things have to go hand in hand. Study of the Word and mastery of his inward character qualities 
truly prepare him for ministry. The second thing to recognize here is that the word Paul uses for bishop, I alluded to this earlier, but um, in this translation, I'm I'm reading from the New King James, he uses the word bishop. In some of your translations, it uses overseer or elder and is used interchangeably throughout the New Testament with these two words and the word pastor. So we're talking about a pastor here. We're not talking about a hierarchical position of a bishop. We're talking about a pastor. So we'll use those interchangeably as I go through this. The Greek word, you should be familiar with this, is presbytos, I believe is the way you pronounce it. That's where you get the word presbyterian from, or presby, presbytery from. It means an elder or an old man. I wouldn't suggest calling an old man. (laughs) But he's an elder. He's someone who is wise, if you would. He's grown in spiritual wisdom. That person is mature with spiritual wisdom and experience. Pastor means shepherd or one who cares for the flock. Each time the word is translated in the New Testament into one of these words, it has a different connotation for the job. So I just like to take a moment and look at several passages that give you an idea of what the job entails. And I think we, we, lose, we lose our perspective on this in our culture. Um, let me just take a little sidelight here. I always wondered why uh, big church pastors were big church pastors. Why is that? Most of them, they're... They're decent preachers. I wouldn't say they're great preachers. There's some of them that are outstanding preachers. Most of them were great organizers. They were administrators. And they, they sort of hid themselves from their people by assigning everything to somebody else. The majority of churches in America are under 70 people. I mean, it's like 70 to 80% of the churches in America are under 70 people. Do you need an administrator for 70 people? Yeah, it helps. It does help. But you need someone who loves people. He rightly handles the word of God, and he loves people. He, he takes time and enjoys his flock. So there's these five different instances. In 1 Peter chapter 5, um, verses 2 and 3, it says, Shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Verse 3, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples of the flock. So, look, the shepherd is to look after the needs of the flock like a shepherd. That is, he's to feed and water them. Now, I don't know if you know a whole lot about sheep. I used to raise alpacas. Alpacas are very similar to sheep in that they're both stupid. Okay? And it's interesting to me um, that God calls us sheep. Okay? Me too. He calls us sheep. And a sheep needs someone to lead them to water. But he also needs someone who will take care of him when he gets to the water because a sheep will drown himself in the water. Do you know that? If they're, not she- if they're sheared, if they're not sheared, excuse me, and they go into the water, they can't get back out because their wool gets full of water and they'll eventually drown. 
They also be ne need to be led to green pastures on a regular basis. What happens when a, a sheep is left in one pasture for a long time? They eat the grass down to nothing. So there has to be this constant leading into good feed. Now that's an allusion to the Word of God. Your pastor needs to be a man who can take the Word of God on a regular basis and feed you with it. And you have to be able to give him time to do that. I'm going to say that a couple times a day. He has to have time to prepare so they can feed you a good meal. Any of you like to cook? Yeah. Okay. Oh, we loved this morning. Yes, probably a bunch of you like to cook. Can you throw together a really good meal in five minutes? No, you generally not. There's a few of you who are wizards out there, but man, when I get ready to cook a meal, it takes me a while, and I'm not a great cook. The second verse is, after, is out of James 127. James 127 says this, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So part of being a pastor is consoling the hurting, looking after the hurting and the downtrodden and the helpless, help, helping folks. He can't be doing that all the time because he's got other responsibilities, but that is one of his responsibilities is to pick up the sheep that are in trouble. Hebrews 13, 7, where the pastor should be an example of faith. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow. You need to be following a man who has faith. That's hard <laughs> at times. Considering the outcome of their conduct. In other words, their faith influences their life, and you want to see them walk in their belief of God seeing them believe him for whatever he does, whatever God calls him to do. Sometimes that's hard. The overseer or those who rule over you is to be an example of walking with Jesus. That's walking by faith. Their faith is to be uh, emulated, if you would. They're to be respected for teaching you the word of God out of faith. The overseer will give an account. Hebrews 13, 17 says this, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive. For they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do that with joy and not with grief. For that would be unprofitable for you. The, um, the overseer is held, or the bishop or the pastor, is held to a higher standard than his flock is before God. And I take that, as a pastor, I took that extremely seriously. And I'm not, I'm not even beginning to tease about that. I have to stand before God for what I say every Sunday out of this word. I have to stand before God as a pastor for the way I cared for my flock, the way I loved them, the way I disciplined them, the way I stood next to them, the way I consoled them, all that I have to give an account for. So be gracious with them. The American church, by and large, has made this difficult. I don't know if I said this before, but I, I was a Southern Baptist for 27 years as a pastor. 
And uh, in the 27 years we averaged, there are 40,000 Southern Baptist churches across America. They averaged 7,000 firings a year. Something's wrong. <laughs> Something's wrong. When, when that many churches are, are firing their pastors. Now, there's reasons for all that. I'm not saying that they weren't right firings. But that makes it difficult for a pastor to give an account before God for the way he takes care of his flock. Some of these things are sticky, okay? They're, they're hard to take at times, but that's true. The overseer protects from false teaching. Acts 20, 28 and 29 says this, Therefore, take heed, uh, Paul's talking to the, uh, to the elders of, of Ephesus, actually, at this point. He says, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come among you, not sparing the flocks. So what is a, a wolf today in, a, in the American church? Well, I believe part of it's liberal theology, however it sneaks in one way or the other. That is a wolf in sheep's clothing. You need to be very careful about it. You want a, you want a person who honors and loves this word. This is primary to them. We've strayed way far on that. There's all kinds of teachings that if you, if you really look at them at the base of the teaching, it's trying to get you away from dependence upon God and his word. And you want to be very careful about that. Evolution. I'm not going to go down this path, but evolution is one of those. Scripture says the, uh, the world was created in six days. Seventh day God rested. Is that true or not? You know, if you do away with the first 11 chapters of Genesis, you, you do away with the need for Christ? Think about that. If man didn't fall in the garden, what's the need for a Savior on a cross? You see, these, these wolves come in, and they're dressed like sheep, and they give disastrous Theology, that's where it really comes in. It's not coming out and biting. It's sneaking in and destroying. So be wise. Be wise. Okay, so the second thing to see here is the character of the elder. Now, the next um, four verses or so, or five verses, are all wrapped up in the person of the, of the, of the, the actual character person of the, of the pastor. And so you want to sort of camp out here and, and understand these things. And I'm going to take a bit of time through here. <clears throat> it says, Paul now outlines the character qualities of an elder or pastor. There are 15 qualities given in these next six verses. I've divided them into two areas, but I'm going to go through each of them pretty quickly. And I'm going to read this so that I don't stop and run off on something. But the first are a list of inner qualities that a pastor must have. The second are the outward qualities that will be visible and will show whether the inward qualities are reality. So what I'll do here is briefly go through each word or phrase and define what this means <clears throat> and then apply it as time allows. Blameless, the first one there, uh, a bishop then must be blameless, literally means not able to be held or nothing to take hold upon. In other words, there's no uh, part where in that man's character where the devil can sit 
and, and get everybody in trouble. That is, there must be nothing in his life that Satan or the unbelievers can take hold of to bring attack on the church. No man living is sinless or perfect. But a pastor must live in such a way as to be blameless or above reproach. All the other character qualities in this passage flow from this one. All help to keep the elder blameless. The next one, now this is one of those sticky ones. You know, I told you there's going to be sticky things through this book, but this is the next one. He must be the husband of one wife. Again, all the qualifications of this passage are masculine. The officer of elder or overseer is not given to women. There's plenty of ministry for women to do. Consequently, Paul here is saying that a pastor's home life is very important. He is to be an example to the flock. I believe it includes the idea that the pastor must not be divorced and remarried. Now, let me qualify that, okay? I want to qualify it. This is, this is where this gets sticky in here. Um, <clears throat> if a man got uh, divorced early in his life, something happened. A lot of guys marry stupid, excuse me, they make mistakes. And they, they end up dealing with that at some point. Um, and then they marry later and they have a solid marriage for 20 or 30 years, I don't think that excludes them from being used by the Lord in the church. I'm sorry, but I don't think, no, I'm not sorry. <laughs> I just don't think that excludes them. But you need to see consistency and continuity in that relationship. Otherwise, that, 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 that part that goes on in the house will eventually erupt in the church. If a man can't govern his home, he's going to have a whole lot of trouble governing the church. You follow me? The church and the home are often almost uh, inter, uh, intertwined. They're not, they're not inseparable as such. I also think, it took me a long time to come to this. At my seminary, there were like 22 different views on, on divorce in the church. So this is my view, and you can take it or leave it. But um, I also think that Paul is talking to polygamy because most of the people in that time were from polygamous cultures, and so they had more than one wife. And I'm here to tell you, it would be really difficult to govern a church if you had four or five wives at home that you had to govern as well. Our modern missionaries deal with that. In Muslim cultures, they, the law is you can have four wives. And so what do they do in the church in a Muslim culture when a man has four wives, but he's got to, stick, he's got to take care of one church? I mean, you know, it's, it's sort of tough. Uh, I, I ministered in a, in a Mormon area. Next time you go down to Utah, notice all the houses with pinnerets on the corners. You know what those were for? They put a wife in each pinneret. Maybe upstairs now, if they had eight wives, they put one downstairs. Why did they separate the ladies in the house? And I don't mean to be, I'm not being mean, <laughs> but I know I have, my, I have a wonderful wife. Um, she's, she's an awesome lady. But um, she doesn't always agree with me. I don't understand that, really, but she... <laughs> And so we go back and forth. Can you imagine having four or six or eight ladies that you had to 
interact with in your home, and then you have to go down to the church and you have 15, 20, 100, or 200 people that you've got to interact with, you would get burnt out in a, in a hurry. And then in addition to that, the Jewish culture was basically, basically one wife. There were exceptions to that. David had 15 wives, Solomon had enough for every day of the year type of thing, three or four times. That's a whole nother deal. But um, mostly they were monogamous, okay? So that's my spiel on that, take it or leave it. But I think you need to be careful about the home life of becoming pastor. You want to make sure he's a man who can mind his home because then he'll be able to mind the church, take care of it. Then it says temperate. Um, the Greek word means wineless, but here it means metaphorically to mean alert or watchful or vigilant or clear-headed. The pastor is to be temperate in all things or able to keep their heads in all situations. The pastor needs to be able to exercise sober, sensible judgment in all things. I think he needs to be able to do one of these. My mother used to tell me, before you lose your temper, count. And then think. That's what he's talking about there. He needs to be sober-minded. The next one is sober-minded. A sober-minded man is, a dis- is disciplined. He knows how to properly order his priorities and is serious about spiritual matters. He must have a serious attitude to be in earnest about his work. It does not mean that he cannot have a sense of humor, but it does mean that he knows the values of things and does not cheapen the ministry of the gospel or the gospel message by foolish behavior. So I think Jesus had a great sense of humor. I think when we get to heaven, we're going to laugh a whole lot. It's going to be wonderful. But we also need to be clear-headed, thoughtful, sober-minded. Then the next one is good behavior. The Greek word means orderly. Elders must not lead chaotic lives. If they cannot order their own lives, how can they order the church? He should be organized in his thinking and in his living as well as in his teaching and his preaching. The next is hospitable. This word is translated meaning a love for strangers. As with all the spiritual virtues, elders must set the example. Their lives and their homes are to be open to all uh, so all can see their spiritual character. And I'm going to, this is me, okay, but I was a pastor for 17 years at Canyon Ferry Church, Canyon Ferry Road Baptist Church. I think I was invited maybe a dozen times into people's homes in 17 years. When I was in Burley, you know, pioneer Mormon area, it was about the same. So my wife and I have talked about that. We've wondered, is that a Western characteristic, you know, out here in the West? And I don't know whether it is or not. I haven't come to a complete understanding of that. But I would tell you or encourage you, when you have a pastor, invite him over for dinner. You know, have him into your home on some regular basis. He should have you into his home. We hosted our entire church a couple times in our house. One time we had 120 people in our, in our home for a Christmas service. <clears throat> I'm not saying that I'm the master of hospitality. But our house was always open for people to come into. Hospitality is a lost art, and I think it's very critical in the church today. If you want to win your neighbors, have them over to 
Have them over on a regular basis. Interact with them. Let them see your family. Let them see how you live. Let them see how you discipline your children. Let them see how you take care of your uh, senior adult parents. You know, let them see your life. That will win them. That will win them. Just give it time. Um, we do a thing, I'm, I'm running down a little rabbit trail here, but we, we do a thing called work away. The young man who was here with me last week is a German. He's from Germany. He's staying with us a month. The first guy that we had was a <clears throat> Mexican young man, brilliant young man. He's a geophysicist. Got a master's degree in geophysicist. We're going to go to Denmark and get his doctorate. He couldn't quite get over the English exam to get in there. So now he's, um, he has a business down in Mexico, and he's making buku bucks as a geophysicist, finding water in the ground. Not a slob by any chance. When he came into our house, he was a communist. He actually told me that. I prayed with him to receive Christ about four years ago. <laughs> and I did his wedding last summer. Excuse me. He stayed three months with us, which was too long. <laughs> but he saw our family, and he watched our kids, and he watched um, the way we interacted, and that's what he decided he wanted. And he came to Christ. We've had about three or four others who have given indication that they want to know Jesus because they see, and I'm not saying we're great, we're not, <laughs> but open your home up. Be hospitable. That's, I'm sorry, that's sort of a stickler with me. Give your house away. Give your life away in your house. The next is able to teach. This is the only qualification that the elder had that deacon that the deacon does not have. The elder must be able to teach the Word of God. That is his main ministry to the body. Ephesians 4.11, I don't have that one up here, but Ephesians 4.11 says that the pastor should be one who teaches, equips the saints for the work of the ministry. He's not given to wine. This is not the prohibition to drinking, but is called to look for men to lead the church who do not have a reputation as a drinker. People didn't mix wine in their water to help purify it. But Paul is saying that a pastor or elder should not be given to wine or drunkenness. A pastor must never have his judgment clouded by alcohol. Consequently, his lifestyle must be radically different from that of the world. Not violent. <clears throat> that is not a brawler or a striker. He's not to settle arguments with his fist, in other words. And um, I'm not perfect in that. I mean, I don't hit people or anything, but I've, been, I've gotten mad enough to hit people several times. That doesn't mean you don't get mad. It means that you control yourself and you don't do it. Not greedy for money. Paul has more to say about money in chapter 6, but what he is saying here is that the pastor is not given to using the ministry to make himself rich. And we have, you don't have to look at TV very far to find that some people use the gospel to try to get rich. Steer away from that. Doesn't mean he wants to be poor. Being poor is hard. But he needs to be um, not greedy. Gentle, that is considerate, gracious, quick to pardon failure, and one that does not hold a grudge. He's patient with people and willing to listen and work with people. He is willing to let others serve in the church without dictating over them. Gentleness is hard to find in our day, it seems. 
not quarrelsome, peaceful, that is, reluctant to fight. One who does not promote disharmony. He is not behind the scenes trying to make a big stir. There are men, unfortunately, who work the gossip line. Did you know that gossip is the worst sin in my estimation? Not in, I think in, I'll just say this. Gossip is the worst sin, I think, in the church today. It's the most destructive. And some pastors can be given to that. You do not want a man who works behind the scenes to take care, you know, get somebody riled up in this group or that group. I had a man in my church who was, um, he worked for the railroad over here, and uh, he was an engineer, he uh, uh, replaced rails, but he also was the union leader. And so every, year, every four or five years when the union contract came up, his job, he was actually taught by the union to cause disharmony amongst the men so that they would take after the manager so he would succumb to their desires for whatever they wanted, raises and benefits and all that. He turned that in on the church one time and almost destroyed us. He finally had to leave the church. You don't want a pastor like that at all. There are pastors, I've heard of pastors that have been silly in that respect. They need to guard their tongue. He's not covetous. Elders must be motivated by love of God, not by love of money. A leader who is in the ministry for the love of money reveals a heart that is set on the world and not set on the things of God. Again, covetousness reveals a heart of a false teacher. Now, these are the inward qualities of a man who should be considered as a pastor for a church, but those inward qualities work themselves out in, an outward, in outward qualities that are mostly seen in the life of the pastor inside of his home. So the next few verses deal with that. The elders, it's the challenge of the pastor. The elder's home life must be consistent with his teaching. So Paul now lists the qualities of a pastor that initially can be seen in his home. Verse 4 says, One who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. He must be one who rules his house well. That is, everything connected with his house. Issues of divorce should not be related to this matter. Divorce shows weakness of spiritual leadership in the home. Rather, there should be oneness um, displayed in the home, first between the bishop and his wife, and then between the bishop and his children. His children are to be under submission. And that's not harsh submission, but it's, a, it's gentle, loving, gracious submission. The guy who really influenced me to be um, a man of God, if you would, it was the gentlest man I've ever seen with his children. And, and, and they all love the Lord today. He was so amazing. I could never, I've never been able to be that gentle. Just, to, anyway. That is, his children ought not to be in rebellion. They ought to be under the submission of the Lordship of Christ. If the pastor is not totally concerned about the eternal salvation of his children, how can he be concerned about the salvation of his church? For Christians, the church and the home are one. That's one reason I think hospitality is so important. I hope you'd be willing to have people look at your life and see Christ um, enthroned in your life. If a man's children cannot love and respect him, then how can, the, 
how can the church love and respect him? The home is the most intimate place in our lives, and it tells us the most revealing things about our lives. So the home should be a major barometer for the choice of a man to be pastor or a group of elders to be chosen. Paul qualifies this in verse 5. He says, For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? So important. And it's so closely tied together. And then, I believe the challenge of the pastor is to live by the cross. I believe this is the key, really, to the whole thing. The cross says that you die to self and you live for others. Jesus was willing to die in order to, so that we might live. The cross is key. He says not to pick a novice or an immature believer. Uh, verse 6 says, Not a novice, least being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, least he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. We walk with, a God, <clears throat> with God by applying the cross to our lives and living in light of the cross. We crucify the f- flesh with its affections and lust. We do not live for ourselves, but for the betterment of others. That's the key to the Christian life in terms of helping other people. The pastor is one who lives for the flock and not for his own desires. If he's a young believer, he can fall prey to the devil's trap, pride, and bring ruin to the church. I fell for that. My first church, we did really, really well. I worked like a beast for five years. Then I fell apart. I went into a, a huge burnout. and We had mega problems in our church. So you need to... You need to be able to order your life properly and then take it easy and see what God does. And finally, verse 7 says, uh, Moreover, again, uh, he, he must have a good testimony among those who are on the outside. We started with blameless. <clears throat> Paul concludes this list with the fact that a pastor or elder must have an impe- impeccable reputation in the unbelieving community. Even though people may disagree with him they see his moral and theological stands they may not like him but they like him that is so important you ought to go in and you ought to go when you're looking for a pastor you should go and ask for um uh, excuse me for recommendations from people outside the church How does a guy do business? How does he treat other people? How does he, uh, how is he respected in the community that he lives in? Years ago, I, um, this sounds really crazy, but I was just starting in real estate. I do real estate on the side. And I had a pastor from uh, Big Sky uh, tell me that he could put together a, a lot of investors so that we could buy a great divide. We were going to buy great, this is like 10 or 15 years ago. Kevin had it up for sale, and we were going to buy Great Divide. And we got down to the, to the end of the deal, and the guy said, um, he told me one day on the phone, he says, well, thanks for getting us a deal, I'll see you later, pretty much. And I said, wait a second, we're in this deal together. No, we're not. My investors aren't going to do that. 
So I called Kevin. I said, don't do business with this man. Turned out that in Big Sky, he had a horrific repu re uh, reputation with the people outside of the church as being a, a chyster. Excuse me. He was not a good pastor, and I had trusted him. And he was not a good representative of Christ in that community. There are people like that, and I just happened, that's just happened to me personally. But you gotta be careful. I hear about pastors pretty regularly that are doing questionable things outside of the church. They should have a sterling reputation outside the church, because that's where they win people to Jesus. It's more important than what they make or do. Let me give you a good one. You probably all know this man. I had somebody come up to me who was a, not a believer. And we started talking. I said, do you know a man named Lowell Bartlett? And he goes, yeah, I know Lowell. And he says, boy, he's a fine man. Boy, he started, you know, Farmer in the Dell for all those people that need that. And he he goes and visits uh, people in the nursing homes on a regular basis, still does that. guy's in his 80s, and he still does that. And I said, man, this is a man of God. I've, I've gotten to work with him a couple times on different things. That is a man of God. And he has a sterling reputation in the community. And he's an elder. He's a, a leader. He's a pastor in a different form. Look for a guy like that. See if you can find that kind of man. And this church will explode. And I don't think God's finished with this church. I've told you that much. He's not finished with you guys. He's got something marvelous planned for you. Take God's word and apply it to what you're doing, and you'll find what God has for you, and it will be a great, great blessing. Let's pray for just a moment. God, thank you for your word. Sometimes it's hard. It sort of cuts across us at times, but it's necessary so that we can be wise, so that we can live for others and, and see them brought to know you. For their eternal uh, destination is more important than our whims at times. God, strengthen these folks and encourage them and bless them. And I pray, Father, that you would um, lead them to the man you have for them, a man of God who, who fits this profile that you gave Paul to give to Timothy. And so, God, I pray that you'd do that and that you'd bless this church more than they could ever even imagine or think, as only you can. Thank you for them, and thank you for this time with them. In Jesus' name, amen.